1: a phone call from a very high member of Scotland Yard, almost at commissioner level, saying get out now, don't pass go. don't go to your desk, just get out and report at Scotland Yard. I said okay. So I left the building and never went back there. Apparently my life was in danger.
2: Welcome back. Former Detective Inspector Robert Jones has seen it all when it comes to crime on the streets of London. But perhaps his more shocking revelations are those on the corruption from within the Met Police and how despite the best efforts of law enforcement, some criminals will always get away with murder. Before we get started, make sure you've taken advantage of the deal on offer with Athletic Greens to get yourself some free AG1. You'll get five free travel packs and a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D with your first purchase. I've been taking AG1 by Athletic Greens for over a year now because it's super easy, efficient, and does wonders for your gut health. With one scoop of AG1, you're absorbing 75 quality vitamins, minerals, whole food source ingredients probiotics and adaptogens to help you start your day right this is a special blend of ingredients to support your gut health your nervous system your immune system your energy recovery focus and even your aging all you have to do is go and visit athleticgreens.com forward slash andy again that's athleticgreens.com forward slash andy to take ownership of your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance hope you enjoy the episode Bob Jones, thanks for coming on the show.
1: I'm oh, pleased to be here. Nice to meet you, Andy.
2: So when you started and you were in Barkingside, you used to, there's a funny story in your book about how you deal with some youths, because you talk about like bringing the bad guys in.
1: Yes, yes. Um, I, I had two thoughts about doing that, um, the writing that because it wouldn't be allowed today, um, not at all, but it was accepted back then in a neighbourhood, say, where there were some youths causing problems, repeated problems, the same youths. But there was no evidence because nobody wanted to give evidence against them. People just wanted to get on with their lives and they're frightened of retribution, having the windows broken. But their lives were made a misery by a gang of about six or eight. So we knew who they were. We knew what they were doing. Um, so we approached them in the van and say, right, in the back, take them in the back, uh, shut the doors, give, take them for a ride to Epping Forest, and having got there, release them, and uh, remove the shoelaces, and they had to walk back, which was about an hour's walk. At the end of that walk, without shoelaces, they didn't want to cause any problems, and it put them off doing it again. There was no record kept of that, by the way. It kept them out of the criminal justice system. they were teenagers, without having to go to court or get a criminal record. But it, it taught them that they should how to behave. If that makes the the, it's the right thing to say, and the residents were pleased. It was something they wanted to see. They wanted us to act and do something and deal with it. Because so that's what we're paid for. And it worked. What would happen
2: if you did that now?
1: Right. What would happen now? Well, I think there'd be allegations of false imprisonment, something like kidnapping, something bordering on assault by taking away their shoelaces, theft maybe, because they didn't get the shoelaces back. All manner of things. Not worth doing. Public expectations were perhaps different as to what they wanted. Now I think it's almost as though the system is looking for problems rather than looking for success. It's too focused on that, the negative side of the police, it should be on the positive side. Because that system I talked about there in the forest worked. It worked beautifully and there were no repercussions and as I said, the kids were kept out of the judicial system and the police officers could get on with the night's work or day's work free from having to do loads of paperwork that wouldn't really go anywhere. The magistrate, the evidence wasn't very strong. They probably wouldn't have been convicted. And if they had, it would have been a small fine, particularly as juveniles. Mm-hmm. So it worked. Quite early on in your career, you were called out
2: to, there were riots. and
1: Yes, there was, uh, I think i have been in the police about two months. As I said, I barely knew where I was in London. I had a little estate agent foldaway away map to tell me where to go. And there's a knock on the door one evening. Um, there was a, a woman police officer there. She said the uh, the colours have blown up in Brixton. No. What? Yes. And uh, I thought she said the colours, which are the Queen's colours, which from the Navy meant a flag. So I thought, why, why have they blown up a flag? But no, she's wearing, using the old-fashioned word of coloureds for, for black people. So I attended the police station on my little motorbike, and uh, it was chaos trying to gather people up and get transport for them, organised chaos. And uh, we took a a traffic warden's van down to Brixton, which I'd never been to before, didn't even know where it was. About 10 of us in the van. And we parked up at about 10 o'clock in the evening outside the police station, doing nothing. Whereas on the radio, we could hear calls for help, assistance, injuries, injured officers going back and forth into the police station in the van, vans damaged, and we just sat there. And then probably about 1 o'clock, we were told to get out and walk up the road opposite Brixton Police Station. As we started to walk up the road, away from the police station, and all the lights had gone in the shops, there was car alarms, building alarms, the smell of burning. And uh, there was a crowd coming towards us, about 200. And uh, there was just 12 or 14 of us. So we stretched across the road and stood there. And uh, the crowd got nearer, and they were happy. They'd had good good time with rioting and shopping through win- broken windows. And... <laughs> Anyway, they got nearer and nearer, then objects started to come towards us. We weren't wearing any riot gear. We had no shields. I had a helmet with an extra strap, which was very soothing.
2: Those helmets, they weren't stopping a thing no. either, were they? No,
1: they are just pointy hats, um, yeah. a, a traditional one, an ordinary tunic and a whistle. You know, we weren't protected in any way. As I said, I got about two months service, and there's a, a guy at the end of the line to my left. He came out with the words, clear the streets. They all got their wooden truncheons out, held them in front of them at arm's length. Held with a truncheon vertically, so I did the same just to comply. And we started to walk towards them, and uh, they stopped. These, these 12 PCs in uniform, you know, with their, their massive truncheon sticks, which were pretty useless anyway, they started to back off, they started to break. And then we went into a run. By now, we were quite we annoyed. Them. Yeah, we charged them. By now, we were quite annoyed, and so we thought, well, go for it, run. And the sight of these 12 PCs are up for it, as it were, they broke, and they bomb burst away a huge bomb burst starburst into the surrounding side roads alleyways just couldn't believe it myself and one of the colleagues chased about four of them down an alleyway we'd done about 100 yards and we looked at each other and we thought no this is far enough have <laughs> got no radios uh we're on our own we wandered back to the van sat down and uh some of us fell asleep and uh, that was it five o'clock came we went back to the station nothing more was said about it and I assumed that was what happens every month, being a new guy, uh, took it in my stride. But it was quite an event, really, to do that. And it shows that you know, a bit of proactiveness with, at a riot does work. I mean, these, the rioters aren't armed with anything. They're just having a good time. And a, a, a bit of assertiveness works. So then you joined the CID. What, yeah. What's the CID? Criminal Investigation Department.
2: And how's that different from the Met? Is it part of the Met?
1: Yeah, it's part of the Met. It's plain clothes essentially. They do investigating more serious offences.
2: Some of the things you deal with were
1: drug busts, right? That would wind the clock back a little bit to when I was on the crime squad, which was the embryonic side of the trainee detectives. Two years we did. And uh, there there was a guy who was providing information, but nobody would listen to him. They thought he wasn't reliable. I had a chat with him, and he did seem reliable. Not a typical informant or grass quite well educated but he had an axe to grind against drug dealers so
2: this was a civilian on the street yeah
1: yeah so um i listened to him and acted on what he told me and he gave me an address um quite a well-to-do part of london and uh i went and got a warrant well first of all i followed this guy he told me what time he leaves so i followed him in a car with a couple of colleagues to another address where he'd obviously um taken drugs or handed over drugs before he got home. So I got a search warrant. My first one. Um, and I thought to myself that night. Oh dear. Have I got the right thing here? You know it doesn't. It's not typical. This, There's something I'm missing here. Um, this is going to be all over the papers. Another cockat by the Met Police. <laughs> be my first one. So uh, got up early. We went around there. Took a drudge dog with us. And the handler. Door was opened. It was a very nice property. I think his mother was there. Uh, with a towel around her. I told her who we were. She screamed, dropped the towel to expose everything of her, and, uh, which was a bit of a shock. And the drugs dog handler, the way a drugs dog works, not just the dog, it's the handler as well, who takes it, spotted something, spotted her hiding drugs in the garden. We had spotted that. So we found a huge bag of drugs in the garden behind a bush she'd dumped, and upstairs we found more, plus thousands and thousands of pounds worth of cash. So it was a success, <laughs> and I leant against the wall going, phew, thank God for that. We got into the police station with all this cross-section of drugs, from cannabis to heroin. Interestingly enough, there was a guy I worked with. He was a, what they call a parent PC. He was a police constable attached to us in plain clothes. He got a lot of experience. Great guy, intelligent. And he was interested in dogs, greyhounds. And he um, he bought a dog. He may have had one before. And we had shares in it, certificates he gave to us. So for any winnings, we'd be split. Oh, nice. Uh, yeah. I think we had to to pay for this share. Anyway, a few weeks later, came into work and straight away, oh, he's been arrested for corruption. What on earth had he done? He'd been working on his own. He'd been approaching members of the public who had come into contact with criminality, if you like. They'd done things which they shouldn't have done without going into it too much, involving uh, bent motor vehicle certificates, stolen ones, and threatened that he'd expose them unless they handed him money. He did this quite often, and he got a lot of money that way. But yet one day, the father of one of the boys who had been blackmailed, as it were, went to the local police station, and they listened, and uh, he got arrested. consequences for us are that we tore up all our certificates, greyhound certificates straight away, and burnt them and threw them away, because we did not want to be associated with this. But that was my first touch of corruption, spotting it, or being involved in it. Um, and I thought that would be the last of it. But it wasn't, and we'll get on to
2: that. That's right. Let's go back to the drugs busting, because you had another incident where there were chainsaws involved. Yes,
1: yes. Um, unbelievable. There was a, a tower block, several tower blocks in East London, and there were drug dealers there. But what drug dealers do, they barricade the door to their flat. Um, with railway sleevers or whatever, not so much for the police, but to protect against other drug dealers mm. who would like to help themselves to the drugs and the money. So that's always difficult to gain entry. You can't get through the back because it's on the 10th floor, so you have to go through the front door. Somewhere along the line, it was decided that council employees who were trained in the use of chainsaws would come with us and attack the doors with chainsaws and get an immediate entry and prevent them disposing of the drugs, because what you don't want to do, you knock on the door, delay 10 minutes, and they flushed all the drugs away. So you need to get in quickly. The first one they tried, as soon as he started pulling at the cord to start it, the door opened, and the guy said, Hello, officer, can I help you? Yeah, you know, <laughs> And that was a bit embarrassing. The next one, they got it started straight away, applied it to the door, and it jammed. The door opened, and the, other, and the occupant of this place said, Hello, officer, I can help you. And another one, they were in the lift, and it stuck. The lift wouldn't move, so they are trapped in this lift. And the guy with the chainsaw was claustrophobic, and he started to get rather frantic with his chainsaw, you know, and the officers with him were (laughs) scared that he was going to kick off with his chainsaw and attack them. So, in summary, it it was never used again, as far as I'm aware. But that brings me to another point, corruption. I mentioned this guy with the the greyhound. There was another incident whereby I and a colleague were looking at uh, a tower block, and we knew there was a, a dealer on one of the floors, but we didn't know where. So we saw a guy pull up in his car, get in, reappear about 5 ten minutes later we knew, oh he's had a buy, he's gone and bought some drugs so we followed him away stopped the car, had a word with him he denied it and said look we searched him, found a, a packet of drugs, I said look, where do you go and get it from, tell us where it was and we'll throw this down the drain and we'll say no more about it because what we want to know is what the, the address is he said, uh, ok, he trusted us he gave us the address so we, we threw the drugs down the drain as a result of his information we searched that place and found the dealer and all the drugs and money and the whole lot. Technically, I'd committed an offence. Practical policing, though, isn't it? it? It's practical, and I think we didn't get any benefit from it. However, if he had been wearing a recording device or, or whatever, something similar to that, we would have been in prison for not handing the drugs in, for throwing them away, for not arresting him. Um, neglect of duty. It would have, <laughs> it would have been isn't a career there, end. For
2: isn't that crazy?
1: It is. Now, should police officers be expected to do that? That's the question. They were doing it then, and it was with the best of motives, and it got the results that people wanted. So, yes, it's questionable, but it worked.
2: So then you became a detective constable, is that right? That's right, yeah. One of your first things there involved a, a drugs bus, and the cop tried to split some cash with you? Yes, yeah.
1: That came out of nowhere. I'd been at West Ham for about six months, one evening, the uniform officers stopped a car they were suspicious of, and uh, the occupant, the driver, he was a known major drug dealer, very major drug dealer in London, had very few convictions, was untouchable more or less. He had his Mercedes, a um, briefcase containing many thousands of pounds, samples of drugs, flick knife, stolen credit cards, the whole lot. It was a very good arrest. It's something that squads have been after in the past, hadn't been able to nail him. He was just too far removed from the action, as it were, but he was a controller. So here he was, you know, excellent package. I said to the officers, you're really good arrest there, and uh, we'll leave it to us, you know, we'll sort him out. We've got all the evidence. Anyway, my supervisor, Detective Sergeant, we sat down to interview him, uh, three of us, and uh, he said, oh, I recognise you, don't I, to this drug dealer. I thought, what was that about? He said, yeah, he said, oh, we can going to have the same arrangement as last time. The drug dealer said this? No, this is the detective sergeant saying to the drug dealer, "Um, are we going to have the same arrangement as last time? I thought, what arrangement is this? And uh, the drug dealer nodded. And the detective sergeant said, well, it's up to my friend here, of course, and uh, what we'll do, we'll lose the evidence in return for some of your cash, and that'll be okay. I'll just check with my colleague. So he went outside with me from the interview room and said, are you okay with this? We're going to go and do this and that going to go and do this and that. Well, you know, we'll lose the evidence. Um, We'll get some money. We'll get about a couple of thousand each. Um, Are you okay with that? And uh, I said, well, I've got a couple of phone calls to make. I'll come back to you in about 10 minutes, 20 minutes. So I made my excuse, as it were. He went back in the interview room. I went and approached the supervisor, and I wanted something doing about this. And he agreed. The complaints section were contacted at New Scotland Yard, and uh, I made myself scarce for about an hour. And uh, I was fitted with a covert recorder, tape recorder, and then went back into the scenario as if nothing had happened. So I had this recorder running under my belt uh, to try and gain, gain evidence. Now, gaining evidence is difficult because you can't force it. You've got to really let it happen. Because I was working undercover now with no undercover training, but I was working undercover. And I had to allow him to tell me what was going, going to happen Rather than me dictate, I didn't want to be a, a provocateur. And uh, over time, over an hour or so, it became clear what was happening. He's, the interview was faked. He told him what to say, and with an idea that he'd be released and it would all be forgotten. And this detective sergeant, he was um, suspended later that evening. I went home, um, got home about midnight. Everybody was asleep, and I was sitting there thinking. You know, my whole head was buzzing. I went in in the morning, one of the, my colleagues said, uh, another detective sergeant, he says, there was a note on your desk somebody had left, so being very offensive towards me about what I'd done. Some weeks later, my top drawer in my desk, the, was the lock was broken. I opened it to get a pen out and there was a bag of cannabis there. I thought, well, I'm not going to report it. It's not that it's going to happen. I've had enough. So I just held it up in front of everybody. I said, is this some sort of joke? And I just threw it in the bin and uh, nothing happened after that. So I think that was practical policing. I mean, that would have just made things very difficult to try and push that. But it sent a message. I wasn't bothered. I will handle it. And I was told, your career in the CID is over. You will not get anywhere. Who told you that? Oh, a number of people. It wouldn't be tolerated what I'd done. What, Um, people
2: in higher up told you that? Or was it just over a beer? Yeah,
1: equivalent ranks sort of said that.
2: You've had it now. So during your time at West Ham, you, you worked a lot in Stratford as well, didn't you?
1: Yes, yeah. And
2: anyone that follows the news, even now, these days, knows it as Stab City. Was it like that back then?
1: Yes, it was. It was uh, stabbing cities, it was known. A lot of it was between East London criminals. It would be a warning, a stab in the leg or buttocks. Um, but sometimes that would go wrong because they weren't surgeons doing it. You know, They were stabbing somebody with a, a knife and uh, cut an artery and they'd die. So it was, uh, murders are quite often, GBHs, that had gone wrong. Um so if they lived, it's very difficult to get a prosecution because their the, the culture was, well, I'll sort it out myself. I will we'll deal with him next week. And they did. But so well, the criminals of, would sort it yeah, out themselves. they sort it out themselves. You, you go to New General Hospital and say, well, I'm here for the stabbing. And they say, which one? And you go into the casualty and there'll be four or five have been stabbed, but there's only one that reported it. And he was after comp- criminal compensation. That was his uh, main thrust. But they didn't want to give you any... Uh, details of who'd done it, because uh, that would be breaking the unwritten rule.
2: Was there times where you
1: just, I'm not
2: going to bother. I'm not going to bother investigating. This.
1: Oh right, yes, yes. It, it just wore you down. The uh, the relentless violence with no real victim, because the victims were just as bad in many ways. Um, so that that was the culture, which was violence, and there was one Christmas day, I was on duty. There's just two of us on. And there was a Queen's Speech on. So I broke away from paperwork. Almost afterwards, a uniform inspector came to me and said, oh, we've got a stabbing down at the pub around the corner. On what? Christmas Day. On Christmas Day. I'm, oh, why can't they just have an amnesty? They had an amnesty in the Vietnam War. Why couldn't they just have an amnesty here? Have a so, day off. Yeah, have a day off, will you? And uh, so I drove down there, turned up. And all the windows of the pub had been broken in uh there a bit of a crowd outside there's a guy being wheeled out in a wheelchair he would got a neck brace on he'd been throat had been slashed i said to him so what happened oh it's all right mate i uh i was just uh getting a drink and i tripped up on a broken glass and did my neck in all right so you don't want the police involved nope not he went in the ambulance and on the windowsills there was flick knives and all sorts which had been dumped because they knew the police were turning up the inside was covered in broken glass an absolute wreck so I just turned around and got in the car and went back and carried on with the paperwork, just wrote it off. You know, the victim doesn't want to know. You adapted to the system. We were just trying to deal with an onslaught. It was a, a, an onslaught and you were batting away work. You weren't looking for it. You were batting it away to stay on top. There was no, no break, nothing at all. It was just constant. Another incident when I was there was a shooting in a pub. The guy, we never really got to the bottom of it, he ran out of the pub, being chased, Caught up with him, the other guys. Um, stabbed him. Hit him with an axe on his head. Squirted ammonia in his face and shot him. So he'd obviously been quite a naughty boy. For the, for that. We found the top of his skull under a car. But there was no witnesses. Nothing at all. No witnesses. Nobody had seen a thing. But there were lots of people there. It was a pub. It was full. But nobody. It was a, the uh, code of silence. Another incident. I was called to a pub where there had been a shooting. Another different pub. Walked in there with a colleague, and there was a huge chunk taken out of the bar, like a shark had bitten it. There people standing around still drinking. The door was smashed through the blast of the gun. It was obviously a sawn off that did it. Yeah, it sounded like a 12-gauge. Yeah. I so said, there's a landlord about. And the he's upstairs, So he came down. I said, look at the state of this bar. He looked at me and went, "Oh, that's a bit naughty, isn't it? <laughs> people were just standing around drinking. I said, anybody see anything? Sound of drinking. So I just packed my bag and left.
2: Didn't you solve a murder while you were part of the burglary yet?
1: We had a, another one which was sold involving a teacher um, in Tottenham. Was, his flat was on the first floor. No, his house was, yeah, the terraced house. And one night, about two in the morning, he woke up and there was a guy standing over him saying, where are the women? And he thought to himself, what, what is this? It's two o'clock in the morning. There's this big guy standing over me saying, where's the women? Uh, then he was stabbed. Uh, repeatedly with a a meat knife. He had an iron smashed on his head, a television thrown at him, and blood was everywhere. Now he decided, look, I've got to get out of here. I'm going to die.
2: This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which
0: So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today.
1: The guy went to another room looking for women. So this teacher, who's who's naked in bed, but the mattress was soaked in blood, he stepped out onto the landing hallway and went down the stairs to get out of the house. And as he went down the stairs, he had an artery was cut and there was splurts of blood on the wall as he went down. He got to the door. It was chained and bolted. As he started to undo it, the, the attacker was at the top of the stairs now. He said, where are you going? So he was fumbling with the lock and latch as this guy was coming down the stairs with a knife. Managed to open it, run out into the street, naked, bleeding. And just at that time, there was a police officer in a car, police car, walk, driving past, saw this, stopped. How's your luck? He's so lucky. And the police officer took his cap off and used it to as a sort of tourniquet to stem the flow of blood and saved his life. So I was investigating that. Forensic helped us in that we found a shoe print on a chair near a window. He'd come up a drink pipe and, and there's a fingerprint in blood, which is absolutely ideal because it shows he was there at the time of the, the assault. And his fingerprint was identified to a guy who'd previously done this. He'd stabbed a, a man in a cafe for no reason, slashed his throat, was unlicensed from prison. When this happened, so we went round to his address with a police dog, and uh, he came quietly, as it were.
2: You also did stuff that involved rape as well, didn't you? Did you handle cases involving yes?
1: That? Um, rapes were dealt with by us in the CID. There wasn't a specialist unit.
2: There's really low conviction numbers for rape, isn't there?
1: Yes, yes, very low.
2: Why is that?
1: Rape is the most, one of the most serious offences on the statute book, and it, and it should be. The public perception of rape is of a woman walking home at night, alone, and she's jumped on by somebody from an alleyway and raped and beaten up. That is the public perception. Unfortunately, rape covers a huge spectrum of events. Huge spectrum. You have, say, between a boyfriend and a girlfriend who've been together for years, and then she calls the police and said, last night my boyfriend raped me. Now, the woman would be examined if there's no bruises, no injuries... And the boyfriend said, Yes, we had sex as normal. What was the problem? We've now got one word against another. And the juries are not going to convict on that level of evidence, her word against his. And they can't really, you need evidence. Now this is where the stumbling block comes. How do you convict somebody when you have no evidence? There are attempts, suggestions that the law should be more lax for rape. Well, I don't think that's fair. Your jury juries at the end of the day won't convict. They want to be Because the minimum sentence at the moment, I think, is about seven years. You need evidence to convict, as you would do for a burglar or a robber, a murderer. Now, rape, as I said, is very difficult in most cases to gain the evidence, particularly if the parties are known to each other. One of the most difficult ones is if a woman reports a rape that happened ten years ago. She mentions a name, doesn't know, can't remember his full name, but he raped her one Sunday afternoon in her house. Now, that is extremely difficult, because there's going to be no forensics whatsoever still in existence, but an allegation has been made, it's recorded as a rape. And although it's impossible to prove it, say she doesn't know the name of the guy, it still stands as a rape on the books. So that's an unsolved rape. So these accumulate over time, unsolved rapes, and the difficulties of finding evidence. So all of a sudden you can see it's dropping away, the number of convictions you're going to get. Plus the CPS aren't going to pursue an investigation the, if Crown prosecution the Crown Service. Prosecution Service, who are lawyers who oversee the police evidence. So they're the ones that you'd give them the evidence yeah, and go they, and convict this rapist. They get court. the papers, as it were, all the evidence, and uh, they decide whether to go ahead with it. And they won't go ahead with it in uh, th- these circumstances. Unfortunately, the police get blamed for the lack of convictions if they're not interested. Now, I know a lot, many women in the police, women detectives, initially approach this with open mind saying, yes, we're going to improve the the conviction rate. But after a year, they realise it just can't be done. The levels of expectation are too high. There is a, a certain issue, for instance, a technicality. If during sex the girl says no more and the guy doesn't stop, that's now rape. So she can give her consent and then withdraw it during sex and then goes to the police. It's a difficult area to prove, very difficult altogether. So that really gives a sort of summary as to where we are with rape, that it is not a public perception offence, that it's a stranger late at night, a violent stranger. It's far more complex than that. The police need to explain that. Otherwise, it's being used as a a political tool, as it Mm. were, to uh, uh, attack the police.
2: From the outside, you could argue from the stats that the Met doesn't do enough to protect rape victims.
1: There's a difference there, protection and prosecution. Protection is different. I would say, and that's giving advice. Um, and there is a, a certain degree of protection by convicting rapists and putting them away in prison because they're not able to rape. That, that is good. But there's only so much the police can do. They're very few in numbers, and they're fewer than they ha- ever have been. And I think the demands are even higher than they ever have been. The expectations are so high that if we divert police resources to doing one thing, they've taken away from something else. So it creates a gap in the front line. So it's a complex area. I think society's got to really look at what it wants, what it's decided, and not expect the police to be the arbiters. The, the officers who work on these are volunteers. They're doing it because they want to do it. They're motivated. What do you mean they're volunteers? Well, you don't have to be on a, a rape investigation if you don't want to be. It's it's not you're not forced upon you. It's the same as being a police officer. It's, you, you want to do the job. But you can only do so much. You can't make the evidence. And we don't want to go down that road. So... We have to go go with the tools you've got, and if society and the law only give you a certain uh, level of support, the police are going to have to run with that. And it's unfair to expect them to do more with something they haven't got.
2: So we've talked about murders, rapists, and what about paedophiles? Because that that's almost like the the trifecta of the worst of the worst, right?
1: Yes, yes. Fairly rare, but I did. Ca- involved in one which is they're all obnoxious to deal with them unpleasant um again i was in the CID office um doing some paperwork and one of the other colleagues said oh we just had a phone call from social services that this guy has been um assaulting children sexually assaulting them um i said where did he live well he lives at such and such address and uh i said well let's let's go let's go and we'll do his door we'll smash the door in Catch him now.
2: Can we say what his name was?
1: His name was uh, Dudley Shooter. Um, he had a pen name for he wrote a book on paedophilia. Uh,
2: he wrote a book on paedophilia, was yeah. saying how bad they were. Or? No, saying
1: how good it is, and it and got and it got published under um, the name of Yule Dursted. I think it's still available as is an apology for paedophilia. Because when I interviewed him, he didn't think he was doing anything wrong. Um, interestingly, he had kept a diary, A four size diary. Of his life, certainly the Pope that year, and in it he did what he did every day, routine. But when he came to a section a day where he's involved in sexual offences, he had a, he wrote code, and the code was extremely clever. It involved Russian and Greek letters, but used in a way that they didn't match uh, Greek or Russian words. So there was a confession, if you like, in the diaries as to what he'd been doing, but we couldn't crack it. So what I did, I sent it to Special Branch. I took some advice and uh, they sent it to MI5. Now MI5 didn't exist then. In theory, they were the secret organisation which nobody talked about, but they did. They processed it in a few days and came back having broken the code telling me what each letter stood for. So I was able to then translate these entries in his diary of paedophilic acts. Complete confession as to what he'd been up to with these girls. But the problem I had was uh, I had no proof that this was the code. The court would say... Well, who's told you that's the code? You might have made it up. So that was a dilemma because MI5 weren't willing to go to court. Because they didn't exist. They didn't exist. So now I've got the answers, all the evidence I need, but I can't use it at court because the expert who did crack the code, he couldn't come to court. So I'm now in this void where I couldn't do anything, although I could see what he'd been up to. So I interviewed him again and said... um, oh, by the way, your diary, that was a fantastic code you wrote there. We had to get experts in from MI5 to do it. And uh, they translated it as this and that. And he says, yes, it took me ages to work it out, he said. So he confessed to that was the code that we cracked. Right. So I had to go and see him again and get him to confess by using flattery, if you like, which is difficult with a paedophile to flatter. And he he accepted, yeah, that was the, the code. So MI5 didn't have to go to court. He went to the Old Bailey, and uh, he wanted the girls who were about six or eight to give evidence at the Old Bailey, which was going to be traumatic for them. Massively. Oh, it was just unthinkable and evil. So what the the defence did, they said, OK, well, if you only give him four years instead of much more, we'll plead guilty to it, he'll accept it. So he got a very reduced sentence for not bringing the girls into court, having to have them forced to give evidence, which I found very unsavoury. But that's the system, I'm afraid. It happens.
2: So in 1991, uh, you joined the Flying Squad. What's the Flying Squad?
1: The Flying Squad still exists, and it's been around for nearly 100 years. It was formed after the First World War to deal with uh, men who'd been demobbed, who were now robbing banks and jewellers uh, with their new firearm skills, were causing a real problem. They are highly mobile, so the Flying Squad had Vehicles, which were new at the time, lorries and cars, so they became the flying squad. So that's the background. made up of men who aren't pushovers, put it that way. They're quite tough guys, a lot of them, dealing with tough individuals. But I thought it'd be interesting you're dealing with a raised level of criminality on a regular basis and you're not dealing with day-to-day CID work at a police station, which becomes pretty grueling after a few years. So I thought I'd have a go at this and I've One or two people said to me, well, after your business with the corruption and your detective sergeant going to prison and uh, on your evidence at the Old Bailey, you may not be surprised if you get there. Anyway, I applied and I did did get through the selection. And I started at uh, Rig Approach in East London. It's called Rig Approach because that's the road it was on. It was a covert building. So I started there. Straight away, I knew people were a little bit suspicious of me because of my background. probably thought I was a bit of a... A sneak, a narc, or whatever you want to call me. But things were, were settled down. I had a, what's called an informant. He was a, an, an arm robber himself, but he was giving me information about other arm robbers. Now these guys are worth a weight in gold. Uh, they save so much money for the police. Instead of having to do lengthy surveillance, um, on the off chance you might catch them doing something, you're told who's doing it, when they're doing it, how they're doing it, where they're doing it, the whole thing, all the questions are answered for you. And uh, he would get a small reward at the end of it. So this guy was working for me. I was meeting him. Armed robbers were getting arrested across London. A lot of them through their photographs that had been taken at banks. He did provide information which involved uh, being able to arrest the driver of an armoured post office unit, one of the post office vans, for involvement in uh, a robbery.
2: Well, so it was an inside job.
1: Yeah, yeah. It was all good stuff um, he was providing me with. But I'd got this... Very important individual doing this for the, the organisation, and then there's a change of management. There's a change at senior level at Rig Approach, and everything changed. Um, he didn't like me because of what I'd done in the past. He was very old school as far as the corruption side of giving evidence and against my boss back at West Ham. Didn't approve of that. In fact, he said to me, "You shouldn't be up here. If I had my way, you wouldn't be up here at all. Why don't you leave?" Really? Uh, yeah, why don't you F off? And, what uh, was
2: the, uh, where are they coming from on that? You don't knock on police officers or you don't knock? Like,
1: it uh, was something like that, don't knock. Uh, as it turned out, there were things going on which shouldn't have been going on, which I wasn't aware of. And obviously, and he said to me, you've got a hotline to the complaints people at Scotland Yard, which I hadn't, don't trust you. And uh, He said he doesn't trust you. Yeah, I had a swipe card to get into the building get rigged approach. That was deactivated, so I couldn't get in without being supervised and he also said well if you don't leave his di was with the tech inspector in his office so if you don't leave i'm going to give you a bad report you know, like you've never had before and i was thinking well how's you going to justify this you know with what i've done so far i said well i'm not leaving he said right you get a bad report i said fine and uh, i left the office then he called me back in about a week later right we've done your report just need you to sign it and i read it and it was dreadful that everything bad you could do as a police officer was there even to the my style of clothing was inappropriate. Everything was awful to the nth degree. It was <laughs> so bad it was good. You now it stuck out. I mean, this is just compared to my previous ones, which are very good. So I said, can I photocopy it while well, I think about it? So I photocopied it, gave it back to him. I started what's called a, a grievance procedure, a complaint really, about being unfair. And just after that, I got a phone call from a very high member at Scotland Yard, almost at commissioner level, saying, get out now. Don't pass go. Don't go to your desk. Just get out and report at Scotland Yard. I said okay, so I left the building. Never went back there. Apparently, my life was in danger. That was the inference. What? Yeah. So I by the police. The, yeah, the police. Yeah, that was the inference that uh, it's for my safety. Went to Scotland Yard and I was put on the anti-terrorist branch um, instead of the flying squad. And what a difference that was! Professional guys, absolutely great.
2: Wasn't there a fallout from rig approach where you were working at the flying
1: squad? Well, I'd put this report in, a complaint, about how I'd been treated, unfairly treated, and what happened was that the powers that be decided that the DCI, the DI, that's the detective chief inspector, and the detective inspector would receive words of advice, which means they're told off for their behaviour. Not really on the record, there's no sanction. Uh, They're not sacked, they're not moved, they stay where they were. So I was a bit disappointed in that, because they obviously realised that things had gone badly wrong. Several years later, there was a surveillance operation carried out at rig Approach on the officers there, because obviously somebody is worried about something, they spotted something. A sting was set up in a house where drugs were placed by the, the complaints people, a quantity of cannabis slabs and cash and word was given to several of the detectives at Rig Approach that this stash was there and was for the taking. So the three of them went round to this address. It was all the covert cameras, of course, all over the place, and microphones. There were video going up the steps to this property. They got into the place, and they stole the drugs and the cash, all on video. Two of them were convicted at Crown Court. These are cops? Yeah. All three of the cops, detectives of Rig Approach, and they turned supergrass against other officers. So it all sort of imploded, more or less destroyed Rig Approach. Officers there couldn't, weren't allowed, couldn't give evidence at court in future. And, and cases from the past, the guys were released because their evidence was now tainted that they gave against them because of what they now did. So it was an awful mess. So in 92, you
2: moved to the anti terrorist branch. Can you give me an idea of the setup there? Because this would have been during the time when the IRA was peppering London with bombs, wasn't it?
1: Yes, they were running various campaigns and they had been doing it for some time.
2: Didn't the IRA used to give warnings before the bombs went off? Yeah, so yeah.
1: There's um, usually about an hour warning. And it wouldn't be to Scotland Yard, they'd speak to other people perhaps on it because um, they are worried about rec- being recorded.
2: Yeah, so how did that process work?
1: Well, it was slow. You relied on the people they'd spoken to contacting us or the police and doing it quickly because there's an hour to play with before the bomb went off. So, you know, time was short, so you could get the warning come through. But it'd be a coded warning. There are a certain number of words were agreed. Where if they used those words, then it was the IRA because there were so many false calls to Scotland Yard. So we had to weed them out. But a short time, so if you're in what was called the control room, which is which I did, running the control room you know, on a shift basis, you'd have to move quite quickly and deploying bomb units, mm-hmm. uh, other police officers, getting people evacuated.
2: So you had agreed a code with the
1: IRA? Yeah, it, it, I don't know how it happened, which channels it came through, but it, it did come through to us. Yeah. And so if we got, it's a so-and-so word... I don't want to go into it now because there aren't people repeating it, but it's a so and so word or phrase that that's genuine, we've got to really act on that. Can you
2: recall any situations where that came through and you arrived or like can you give me any sort of examples of when it actually played out
1: well the the, the big threat was to the city of london really the the financial centre who was, did want you know the finance centre to move elsewhere, so that was a concern. And they could cause so much disruption just using a coded word and not doing anything, because that would bring the place to a halt. You could bring London to a halt by using a coded word. But by and large, no, they, they stuck to it. At least they did give us a, a warning. Whereas other groups, some Middle East groups, they attacked. Israeli embassy was bombed one occasion, a car bomb. There was no warning, and 68 people were injured. Fortunately, nobody was killed, but there was no warning on that. And there was a similar attack with a car bomb in Finchley did the same thing so at least the warning was more or less enough to clear the streets or clear the, the area but of course when you're given a warning the responsibility is passed to the police to deal with it they've had the responsibility now they've given it to us so it's a little bit of the bomb's almost your fault from then on isn't it's it? it is it's your baby from that on you know, once you've got to get it right from that point of view shouldn't have had a bomb in the first place of course
2: then you moved to Detective Inspector Harringay. It's 98 to 2005. What? So during, that, during this time, you de- helped develop a video surveillance system, isn't it
1: right? Yes, on the anti-terrorist branch. I'd, I'd become interested in video on the Flying Squad with the results that we could do with it and uh, anti-terrorist branch. Now, the video was becoming more and more widespread.
2: Didn't you catch Banksy... Doing some graffiti art?
1: Ah. In a way, yes. This was interesting in that um, our cameras were dotted around Haringey in the crime areas and in Wood Green, just off Wood Green, there was a shop, a warehouse, and uh, the graffiti appeared there, one of his. The two guys I worked with who used to check the cameras if there'd been an offence committed went and looked at the video and I saw, yes, he was on video doing it. And he's quite clever how he does it. I won't spoil his technique. You know, credit to him. He's obviously gifted.
2: Doesn't he just have stencils and he sprays it?
1: (sighs) It's more complicated than that. Really? Yeah. However, he'd done it. Um, But it struck me, and it still does. If I'd done it, one of my sons had done it, he would have been arrested for criminal damage under the 1971 Act because it costs a lot of money to replace it. But he has a free pass because he's Banksy. I like
2: that. If you're adding value to a situation that is above you and it's more than just you, mm. I think there's got to be some common sense but, in the, that way. But
1: where does it kick in? You know, you get a guy who comes and does something like that, says, oh, I want to be Banksy. Well, you're not. You're nicked for a criminal damage. So where, where do we start? Does he have to reach a certain monetary level before he's immune?
2: This is looking at the law book in a black and white way, and it's not black and white.
1: That, is that's right. You know, the graffiti on railway stations, these are artists. Some of them are good. They are good, and they ain't uh, Banksy, so you're getting locked up. So you're getting locked up. Now is that fair?
2: Yeah, they've got to be adding value. If your graffiti is lowering the value of the aesthetic and not bringing in some sort of positive result, then you're going to be prosecuted. Well,
1: I I would take it away from the police that decision. That is down (laughs) to society. Just don't involve the detective sergeant who's got a desk load of papers and he doesn't want to get involved in that decision.
2: But that's quite cool that you actually saw, you actually saw Banksy. Did you see his face and yeah. everything? So you know what he looks like.
1: Yeah,
2: is this a normal looking dude?
1: Well, he's got one head, two arms, and two legs. Yeah.
2: Did just so he just had some spray paint and some
1: stencils? There. No, I, I, I've got sympathy for him. Don't get me wrong, I've got sympathy for him, and I don't want him to stop. But it's still a dilemma: is where does it start and where does it end? Where's the spectrum? Where does it all sit? Got to discourage kids from doing it.
2: Bob, thank you very much for coming on the show.
1: No, it's been a pleasure. It's been very worthwhile. And your book,
2: Met Police, London, Terrorism, Murder and Police Corruption. It's out now?
1: Yes, it is available on Amazon.
2: If you like this episode, make sure you give it a share and follow us on whatever device you're listening to this on.